I'd invite you, if you turn in your Bibles, to Mark chapter 9. Our scripture reading is Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. Mark chapter 9, beginning to verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, we would ask you to enable us to have the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit to see here in this passage those things that would instruct us more deeply in what it means to know Jesus Christ and to walk faithfully with him and and to be those who identify in every way with our Savior and his mission in this world. We ask for much grace in this, Father. We know that the things of the scriptures are often contrary to the things of our own lives, the things of the flesh. And so work within us those things that are pleasing to you so we can be salt and light to this generation. In Christ's name, amen. Now, once again, we have a story that has its beginning anchored in the previous passage. And without understanding the previous passage, we really probably can't understand this. The previous passage deals with uh, Peter, James, and John being with Jesus up on the mount, up on the mountain, 
and having that incredible experience, which we call the transfiguration of Christ. It's where Jesus, up on the mountain through the night, was transformed from the standpoint of his appearance so that it was radiantly shining white, whiter than any, quote, fuller could ever get things white. I don't really know what a fuller is today, but back in that day, it was someone who could dye things or wash things in a brilliantly white manner. And that's the way Jesus appeared. And then Moses appears and Elijah appears, and the three of them are talking about the exodus of Jesus out of this world that was going to take place in Jerusalem. And then following that, there's a voice from heaven, from God the Father, who says to Peter, James, and John, This is my Son, my beloved. Listen to him. And the next morning, they come off the mountain, and Jesus says to them, Don't say a word about this to anyone till after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So that's the context. They're coming down off the mountain off this most incredible experience, and now they're back into the real world. Now, in this story, there are five kinds of lessons that most of us are going to go through as Christians. There are five things where we can read this story and say, this story is also our story from the standpoint of what the disciples were experiencing and what the Father experienced and the messages that this passage has to say about faith, all of which to remind us of one central truth, that Christ is the center of our lives as Christians, that everything about the Christian life is Jesus Christ. Everything we might think about the Christian life in terms of becoming a better person and being sanctified or having everlasting life Salvation after we die, not having to fear death, having our sins forgiven. Uh, All of those kinds of things that we think about in terms of what it means to be a Christian, all of that and every bit of that comes together under one idea that Jesus Christ is the center. Jesus Christ is the all and all of the Christian faith. And apart from that, apart from knowing Jesus, apart from living and walking with Jesus, there really is no such thing as a Christian life. That's the main lesson out of all the lessons that we find in this passage. So five lessons. We'll move through them because they basically show up as we move through the passage. And the first lesson is this. You have to come down off the mountain. In terms of the Christian life, you have to come down off the mountain. Now, what do I mean by that? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've had experiences where uh, perhaps it was at some kind of mountain retreat, some kind of Christian retreat. You were getting incredibly great teaching, incredibly great fellowship, and it just felt like such a, a wonderful foretaste of what heaven must be like in the hereafter. And, and you enjoy that, you experience that, and then you realize that either the next morning or in a few hours, you've got to get in your car and you've got to drive back down and enter into real life. And you so wish that you could just preserve this sense, this, preserve this feeling, preserve this atmosphere, just preserve this. Because, in fact, it just seems to exalt what it means to be a Christian. It seems to exalt Christ so strongly in your life. Now, I can tell you that um, 
this is a, a, an annual event now for Julie and me when we go to the Colorado mountains, and we're up there this time for two weeks. And even though I'm involved in, in, in working as a working vacation, teaching, and then doing grading homework and all of this, it's a wonderful group of young people. It's a wonderful group of administrators. It's a wonderful setting. It's incredibly beautiful. And for, for two weeks, we're experiencing just sort of the best that you can experience of the Christian life in this life. And believe me, Friday night, going to have to leave Saturday morning, we don't want to leave. Now, it's really like Peter up on the mountain of transfiguration. And when, when Jesus is transformed and Moses and Elijah appears, Peter says, not really knowing what he's saying, but coming out of some kind of desire in his heart, Rabbi, let's build a tent for you and for Moses and Elijah. Because, and this is sort of the thing that isn't said, but sort of understood, it would be great to stay here for quite a while. It would be great to experience this for longer than just a short time. And of course, the whole experience is just for a night. They have to come back down the mountain the next day. They have to re-enter into life. And what are they experience? What is the setting when they come back down off the mountain, see the other nine disciples, and they realize there's a crowd and there are the scribes, and there's conflict and argument going on. The, the lesson is this. It's, it's, a, it's vital for us as Christians to have those times in which our fellowship with God and our fellowship with others is strong and deep. It's vital that we, we, we try to cultivate this even on a daily basis in terms of our personal devotional walk with Jesus himself. It's vital that we, we come together often with Christians and, and have that kind of sweet fellowship. But it is not for this life that those experiences remain the consistent norm. The consistent norm of this life is the fight, the good fight of the faith, the battle as a Christian. Conflict is all around us. The consistent norm for the Christian is we have to engage and re-engage the world. Now, the whole principle of the spiritual life really set out in Genesis chapter 1 where you've got six days of labor and one day of rest is to remind us that we need to consistently punctuate our lives with dedicated time to the Lord. We ought to be doing it daily. We, of course, do it weekly. But it's a principle of the Christian life that we must have that time with Jesus Christ. But that kind of time with Him and even with His people can never allow us to stop engaging the world. And so we go to work on Mondays. We deal with our children throughout the week. We find out that the school administrators where our children are attending don't have a clue about what real education is. We, we struggle with all these kinds of things we, day in and day out. We have neighbors who don't really understand what it is to be good neighbors. 
conflict is the norm. But in order to deal with the norm, we must have that time with Christ. You all know this. (laughs) You all know this because this is the Christian life. The second thing we see here is, is in terms of what's going on when they come down off the mountain. And here's another very important lesson about the Christian life. So I'll say what the lesson is, and then we'll see how this is in the passage. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can't do anything spiritually good. Apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot do anything spiritually good. So we pick up the storyline at verse 16. They come down off the mountain, and Jesus immediately asks, what are you arguing with the scribes about? So there's an argument going on, and the source of the argument is that the nine disciples who were down off the mountain and the scribes are in an argument concerning the Father's request that the disciples would heal this Father's Son who's demon-afflicted. Now, we don't know precisely what's being said between the disciples and the scribes. What we know is they're involved in an argument. We also notice that the crowd is watching this. But, and we can easily guess that, that the scribes took the failure of the disciples to cast out this demon as their strong pretext for entering into accusations against Jesus, accusations against the disciples, accusations against the message of the kingdom. So I want you to consider the situation and look at it this way. The disciples are presented with a great need. One they had seen any number of times before in terms of people being demonically afflicted. In fact, a few months earlier, they had seen a situation where a mother, a Syrophoenician woman, had come on behalf of her own daughter who was demon-possessed. And so they knew that Christ could heal. In fact, when they were sent out two by two, they themselves had had the authority and power during those missions to cast out demons. So here is a great need. But they are unsuccessful in meeting this need. The scribes seize the opportunity of their failure to pick a fight with them. Now here's what's crucial. Instead of the disciples turning to God in prayer turning their hearts to their master, the Lord Jesus, to find answers as to why they couldn't cast out this demon, they take up the bait of the argument, they get fully engaged in the argument, and they leave this poor father and his suffering son behind, no better off than they were before. I want you to stop and reflect upon this and understand the depth of the failure of the disciples of Jesus and their faithlessness, their inability to recognize that if what they did first did not work, that the answer and the solution to that is not to pick a fight or get involved and embroiled in a fight with their spiritual enemies, but to go back to God and say, God, why? What is it? Where where can we get help for this man? Where can we get help for this son? 
they did not yet understand that though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. That the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. As the Apostle Paul said, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. But not by walking in the flesh, not by warring according to the flesh, but using the spiritual arsenal that God himself has given to us, first and foremost of which is prayer. The response of the disciples to get involved in an argument is an index of how faithless they were in this situation and how easy it was for them to drop back to their carnal ways of dealing with the issues of life. Now, how often have we been the same way? I don't think I'm necessarily, though Julie could say differently, a combative, conflictive kind of person. But how often we have gotten into a tiff that's a nice word for an argument. Where the direct answer should have been, whoa, stop, let's pray. We're not on the same page here. But instead, the carnal guy inside of me says, I know what I'm talking about. I know you're not right. If you'll just listen to me, you're bound to be convinced by the superior rationality of my position that you're wrong, I'm right, you'll capitulate, and we'll do this the way I want it to be done. Which is to say, inside of me, there's a combative, conflictive kind of guy who's ready to argue, just give me a chance. When I read this, and I see the disciples taking the bait of an argument and getting full-fledged involved in it, I see my own story, and I see what powerlessness there was in the disciples to do anything good for this man and for his son. One night away from Jesus. One night away from Jesus, and they can't get it right. So the lesson here, apart from Christ, they had no faith. And apart from faith, they had no ability to do anyone any spiritual good. And when we are at a loss as to how to deal with a situation, it is not our rationality. It is not the great vast experience we've had before that's going to settle these issues. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Now the story continues, and it introduces a third lesson in terms of what we need to know. And this we can consider by looking at the father who seeks help for his son. And, and, and this is a lesson that some of you would say, I'm more a grandparent than a parent. But 
it applies to grandparents as it applies to parents. It applies to those who don't have any children but have family members. But the context of the story gives it as a father and a son, and here's the lesson. Think about the father. Think about a son's condition. We are never adequate to meet our own children's deepest needs. We are never adequate to meet our own children's deepest needs. Now consider verses 17 and 18. The father describes his son to Jesus, and this is what he says. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that has made him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So the boy, as we know from the passage, doesn't have just a normal kind of epilepsy, and, and the symptoms here correlate with epilepsy quite well. He has this affliction in terms of being demonized by an evil spirit. It's the spirit that makes the boy mute. It's the spirit that evokes the epileptic-like seizures. It's the spirit that causes the physical collapse, the foaming at the mouth, the grinding of the teeth, the rigidity of the body. All of this is not a natural form of an affliction. It is demonically induced, and the father can't do anything about it. He's helpless to heal his own son. Now, we need to paint this picture in the darker colors that Scripture paints the picture. Bishop J.C. Ryle, that great Anglican bishop of, of the 19th century, has written this. How early in life Satan begins his work in children. I know that we would love to believe uh, the same things that non-Christians believe, that our children are born, and they're either born perfectly good or they're born of some kind of tabula rasa, some kind of white uh, sheet, that then bad things are written upon the children's life and heart. The Scriptures do not teach that. The Scriptures do not teach that children come from the womb ready to love God, obey Jesus, and be great children for their parents. The scriptural doctrine of original sin tells us that we are conceived and born in a state of sin. And because of that, Satan begins as early as our birth to begin his dangerous, evil work within our souls. And parents... The waters of baptism does not put some kind of shield around your child. Uh, th there's not any uh, things you can hang over your child's crib that's going to protect them. Uh, putting a cross in the bedroom is not going to be of any help. There is absolutely nothing you can do of that kind of nature ever that's going to protect or shield your children from the influences of the devil even at the earliest stages in the devil's in the child's life. Sometimes our children are little devils, I know. And this father could not do anything. When, when Jesus asked, how long has this been going on? He says, 
basically the scriptures teach from infancy he had been afflicted this way. So here's the lesson. While parents cannot be the savior of their children, they are not powerless. They can bring Christ to them in the word and they can bring them to Christ in prayer. They can do this much, and this much is a great thing. We must never forget that. Every way in which we can bring Christ to our children in the Word of God, and every way we can bring our children to Jesus Christ in terms of our prayer, that is the great thing that we can do. If you have grown children, why would you stop praying for them every day? If you have grandchildren, did you not begin to pray for them when they were in their mother's wombs? There's no talisman, there's no charm, there's nothing like that that can ward off the work of the devil. But there is the Word of God and prayer. And it is our privilege and responsibility to bring Christ to our children and to bring our children to Christ in this way. Now, the fourth lesson shows up in verses 19 through 24. And and here we see the father's sad condition where belief is mixed with unbelief. So the boy is brought to Jesus. The spirit sees Jesus. Immediately this, this stimulates a convulsion in the boy. He falls to the ground. He rolls around. He foams at the mouth. All the symptoms which the man had described to Jesus beforehand takes place as soon as the boy, the boy comes into the presence of Jesus. The spirit sees Jesus. Jesus asks how long. The father says since childhood childhood, he says, the Spirit had often often sought to destroy his son with fire and with water. Now, what Mark doesn't say, which is undoubtedly true, a proper reading between the lines, is that as often as the Spirit had tried to destroy the son with fire and with water, the father had had to save his son's life. The father had many times then rescued his son from the malevolent spirit's own movement of that son to commit some kind of awful thing against himself. So as often as the spirit had done this, as often the father had done everything he could to keep his son physically alive. That's how serious this situation was to the father. That's how great this need was was. And the disciples had failed. And now the father coming to Jesus is not nearly as confident as he once was. His own faith in Christ at this point is weakened. And so now he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father's no longer sure. Jesus replies in verse 23 this way. 
if you can. All things are possible for the one who believes. You see, the Father had placed the question upon the power of Jesus. If Jesus can do it, but Jesus turns the question back upon the Father and says, if you can, and then anchors the whole matter to the issue of faith. Now, I'll be honest with you. I did not see that and did not understand that until I read Matthew Henry, until I read John Calvin, until I read the men who know their scriptures so incredibly deeply and so incredibly well, that what was really going on here was Jesus bringing this issue back to the man and the condition of his own faith. Now, the next statement, of course, makes that clear. I believe, help thou my unbelief. The man feels the weight to rest upon his own faith. But before we get there, I want us to consider something that Jesus says here. All things are possible for the one who believes. One of the most incredible statements in all of Scripture about prayer, and no statement about prayer has ever been more deeply abused than this statement. It's been so deeply abused by those who treat faith not in terms of believing correctly and believing deeply in accordance with biblical truth, but simply in terms of believing something strongly enough, convincing yourself that something's going to happen because if you believe strongly enough, you can have it. More than half of the evangelical church in America holds the latter notion about what faith is. That strong faith is a matter of convincing yourself that God's going to do something for you. It's difficult to pastor as long as I've pastored without having encountered this kind of an understanding of faith. And it's incredible abuse. I've shared this story before. I'll share it again. In the church I pastored back in the 1980s, there were three young sisters. The oldest was junior high. They had been adopted by their aunt whose sister had died. Their mother had died. These three children were told by the pastor officiating their mother's funeral that although their mother was dead, if only they had faith that was strong enough, even then their mother would rise from the dead and be returned to them. God would return their mother to them if only they had enough faith because with God all things are possible. Now, I'm going to say this. There are people who say to me, why are you so concerned about correct doctrine? Why don't you just preach about the love of Jesus? And here's my very candid response. It's because of this kind of an abusive, stupid viewpoint that 
True biblical preachers have to be so careful about their doctrine and not abuse people with things that aren't true. These children were a mess, carrying the guilt that their mother was dead and stayed dead because they didn't have enough faith. This is not what Jesus was teaching. The proper use of this incredible statement of Christ will always be an understanding that it is faith in a God who is sovereign over all things and in Jesus Christ, His Son. It's a faith who believes that with this true God, all things that pertain to His glory, all things that pertain to the advance of His kingdom, all things that pertain to the ultimate good of those who love Him, who are the called according to His purposes, all those things are in fact possible for those who will trust this God and His sovereign power. You see, Jesus isn't teaching that this kind of faith is like a debit card in some kind of infinite bank account where the PIN number is simply convincing yourself that you can withdraw exactly what you want. There is no real faith that is not connected to the right view of God and the right view of His sovereignty over the affairs and purposes of this world. The true power of faith is always resident in a true knowledge of God revealed in Christ. And apart from that knowledge, it is presumption, not faith. Now, the proper use... Well, here's the perspective of Calvin in terms of the proper use. Here's what John Calvin has to say. You ask me, says Jesus, to aid you as far as I can, but you will find in me an inexhaustible fountain of power, provided that the faith which you bring be sufficiently large. Hence, what may be of useful doctrine here, which will apply equally to all of us, that it is not the Lord that prevents his benefits from flowing to us in large abundance, but that it must be attributed to the narrowness of our faith, that it comes to us only in drops, and that frequently we do not even feel a drop because unbelief shuts up our heart. The point is, there is very often a very deep flaw in the faith which we possess. Even when our beliefs are right and true, we do not trust God deeply enough. And let me give you the very practical example here. The Father's going to say, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Basically telling us that in this man there is some true belief mixed with a whole lot of unbelief and he needs Christ to help him. We're the same way. 
think, if you will, of Philippians chapter 4, where the apostle outlines the fact that he, in his spiritual life with Christ, has learned to be content in whatever the circumstances may be. He's learned to abase, he's learned to abound. And then he goes on to say that the climax of all of this is this wonderful statement, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now that's your doctrine, isn't it? Do you not believe that Jesus Christ can do all things? You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Isn't that your doctrine? Isn't that what you believe? Isn't that what you would say to others? You're going through a really tough time. Hang in there with Jesus Christ. Jesus can enable you to do all things through Him. It's Christ and Christ alone who can strengthen you, and He's ready to do so. Trust Him, trust Him, trust Him. Isn't that what we would say? Of course it is. Do you struggle to believe it for yourself? Do you struggle to believe it for yourself? For you who have given me blank stares, the correct answer is yes. (laughs) Look, I struggle at times to believe that, that Christ can do all things through me, giving me strength. I know it's the Word of God. I know it's true. And my prayer has often had to be, I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. Which is why the sweetest words in, in light of our struggles are found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when the writer says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the founder, the author, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. When you don't have enough faith in Jesus, look to Jesus and pray for more faith. Finally, one last thing quickly. The last part of this, the last five verses, 25 through 29, present the immediate sovereign power of Christ over Satan. But the last sentence has to do with the disciples asking Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this spirit? And the response of Jesus is, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. And you stop and you you think about that. What did the disciples actually fail to do? They had failed to pray. They had engaged in an argument that was fruitless. They had failed to pray. They needed to pray. They needed to keep on praying. They needed to keep on believing that it was in Jesus that the, that the answer might be found. And here is what Christ is teaching us. Little faith, little prayer. Much faith, much prayer. Prayer drives out the devil. Not necessarily your first prayer, or your second, or your third. But the final analysis, it's prayer. Praying, 
persistently praying, unrelentingly praying, unceasingly praying. Ultimately, the one who believes in Christ knows that apart from Christ, and therefore apart from prayer, we can do nothing. That Jesus Christ is the center of the Christian life. That Jesus Christ is the all and all of the Christian life. That all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And God has given us his word to take us to Christ. And God has given us prayer that brings Christ down to us. It's in Christ that we live. Amen. Father, help us to see in this story our stories and to recognize, Father, that the lessons here are the lessons that we need to continue to persist in. Father, help us to remember that the beginning of our lives are in Christ. The end of our life is Christ. It's your word. It's prayer that always connects us and enables us to abide in Christ. Help us to live that way to the glory of Jesus. In his name, amen.